Uh, so welcome everyone uh, to our talk on St. Martin de Porres. I'm Brother James, and uh, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we thank you for the example of the saints that you give to us for admiration, for imitation, and for the help of their prayers. We ask that you would uh, assist us in our path to you by the intercession of St. Martin de Porres. And we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. St. Martin de Porres, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, welcome everyone. So uh, what were we listening to at the beginning there? That was actually uh, a song about St. Martin de Porres from the jazz artist Mary Lou Williams, who, uh, I don't know when exactly this happened in, in the course of her life, but she was famous in the jazz world, and then uh, later on became Catholic. And she herself is African-American, and she became Catholic and was very much inspired when St. Martin was canonized, and this was a tribute to him. Um, so who was St. Martin? The first, uh, the first American, in the broadly, broad sense of the word, the first American person of the New World of African descent to be canonized, and that was in 1962. So, you know, that's significant for a couple of really big reasons. First of all, in the States, obviously uh, in the 60s, with, um, you know, all of this, the civil rights um, actions that were, that were going on, all of the civil rights movement and everything that was going on, uh, for the church to canonize uh, a person of African descent was a big deal. In fact, uh, people, not only Catholics, noticed this. So there is a, an article from Ebony Magazine back in 1962, shortly after the canonization, where St. Martin de Fora's canonization was the lead story. And um, also another story in that uh, same issue was the it, there was something going, in, going on in Louisiana where the, the bishop was taking a strong stance on the desegregation of the schools, of the Catholic schools, and he actually ended up having to excommunicate some people who were vocally, publicly opposing him in this. Um, and, and so that was also featured in this magazine. So, you know, all these things are going on in, uh, in the United States when this canonization takes place. Um, actually, does anyone here remember the canonization of St. Martin de Porres? As in, like, lived through it that, and recall when that happened? Maybe not. Okay. Um, I'd be, if anyone, I guess online people can hear me too, right? If anyone online can, has stories, I'd be interested to hear those uh, also. I, um, I couldn't find many resources to see how 
you know, the, the average person in the States was reacting, like people who lived through the experience. So I'd, I'd be interested to find some of those things. Um, a second reason that this was very significant is because 1962 is shortly before the start of the Second Vatican Council. And so who, so um, Pope Saint John XXIII was the one who canonized Saint Martin, who, who declared him to be a saint. And he's the one who called the Second Vatican Council. He very much, well, let's see, the council was about to open five months later. So the canonization was in, I uh, lost it, it was in June or July of 1962. And October 11th, of that same year, the council opens. And St. John Paul II very much had this in mind when he was canonizing St. Martin, and he mentions that in his homily. So um, what did he say? My notes are sort of in disarray, but uh, here we go. Uh, here's from St. John the, 20th, the 23rd. Uh, Venerable brothers and dear children, we consider it very opportune that this year, in which the council is to be celebrated, Martin de Porres should be listed among the saints. For the path of holiness that he followed and the splendors of illustrious virtue with which his life shone can be seen as the healthy fruits that we wish for the Catholic Church and all men as a consequence of the ecumenical council. May the example of St. Martin teach many how happy and wonderful it is to follow in the footsteps and obey the divine commands of Christ. That was a big theme of the Second Vatican Council, the universal call to holiness, how everyone is you know, on the path to God to be a saint. And here, John XXIII is intentionally holding up St. Martin as a model for all of us to follow in that path. And there's, um, you know, there's twofold aspect when thinking about the lives of the saints. One of them is... Uh, you know, there are some very fantastic stories about the saints, and they are for our admiration and just the uh, surprise at the, the power of God and the generosity of God in doing these miraculous things uh, through the saints. So there's admiration on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's imitation. There's imitation for the, the virtues of the saints for us to recapitulate that in our own lives. And so... Um, I thought that what I could do is step through some of the uh, most, well, some of the stories from St. Martin de Porres' life that are, cover both categories, those for admiration and then some for imitation. Um, so there are some great sources that we have for St. Martin de Porres. Um, one of them is a book by a Dominican on, oh, you know, I didn't mention, I guess this is important. Most of you probably know this, but St. Martin de Porres was not ordained. So uh, like it's a fitting that I'm presenting on him. I'm not ordained. I'm a lifelong brother, a cooperative brother, as we call them now. St. Martin also was not ordained, but there were actually multiple categories of non-ordained Dominicans. So he was... Um, People who are, the, the Dominicans who are like me, I'm like them, were called conversi. They were um, 
solemnly professed brothers who assisted in various ways around the convent and, and were not ordained. So they did not perform sacramental ministry. Then there were others who were of a... Okay, so society was very stratified in, in Lima, Peru in the 17th century. That's 16th, end of 16th, beginning of 17th century. That's when St. Martin lived and where he lived. The society was very stratified, and this is reflected even in um, the um, situation within the Dominicans. So the, beneath the, beneath the next level down from the conversi were the, were the Donati. St. Martin was a Donatus. And actually, here's the most early... How do I get beyond this? There we go. The earliest picture that we... Oh. The earliest picture that we have of him um, shows him in the habit of a Donatus. Usually he's depicted in a different way in, as, as, the, as the lay brothers were dressed in their habit uh, in later years with a black scapular instead of a white one, a black scapular and otherwise looking like a Dominican habit. But the, the, um, the Donatus habit was actually no scapular, just the white tunic, I guess he had a black cloak, and he, St. Martin's habit at least was to wear a rosary around his neck at all times. He actually had one around his neck, and he'd always have one in his hand. He'd be constantly praying the rosary. Um, this is the oldest picture possibly painted during his lifetime that we have of him, and this is actually a reconstruction from his skull of uh, using some forensic uh, techniques to see what he would have looked like just from judging by his skull. It, the, the, the similarity is remarkable to me. I don't know if they used the picture to make the reconstruction. I don't, I don't think so, but anyway, that's uh, St. That's Martin. So what was his life like? He would, um, well, actually, I'll tell you stories, and it'll, it'll come out in the stories. So... First story. Well, actually, well, actually, first here are some pictures from the canonization uh, in 1962. So here's a procession with his banner. Here's a during the mass, I presume, uh, everyone situated in St. Peter's Basilica there. Okay. So some stories from the life of St. Martin. These pictures aren't all the best, I'm sorry, but the best I could find at the moment. First off, his, his great devotion to Christ, to Christ crucified and to Christ in the Eucharist. Whenever he would receive Holy Communion, St. Martin, um, he would disappear for the day. Whenever he received communion, no one would be able to find him for the rest of the day. And, the, and time after time, they, they noticed this, he, he just could never be found. He was off. He wanted to be alone to, to, to commune with Christ after having received this great gift. And now, you know, receiving communion was much less frequent in those days than it is today. And um, so, you know, that's, he had a lot to do otherwise, but that's why I think he could take this time to, to be absent from uh, his normal responsibilities. Well, uh, 
despite his being absent, there's some remarkable stories about what would happen when they needed him on days of Holy Communion. So sometimes, you know, he, he was in charge of the infirmary, which I'll get to later. So he was, he was the, the, the infirmarian, the physicians to, uh, is not quite the right word, but he was the, the local, nurse is probably the, the best word for it. He was the nurse for the convent. And there was one day when he, there was someone really sick in the infirmary and they needed his assistance, but it was a day of Holy Communion. They looked all over for him. He was nowhere to be found. Uh, so they had the superior order him under obedience to come and tend to the sick person. So the superior just gave the command, and then all of a sudden Martin walks through the door and is ready to tend to the, to the sick person. So uh, things like that would happen with him a lot. He, he was remarkable for his ordinary virtues, but also for these just uh, quasi-miraculous or miraculous things that would happen uh, around him all the time. And this, was, and this was noticed during his lifetime, not just after his passing. Another time, so his devotion to Christ in the Eucharist and his devotion to Christ crucified, he would often be, uh, would spend hours in prayer before a crucifix, and at times people would stumble across him, and this is one famous instance, he was seen to actually be, uh, his body was following where his heart was, was leading. He was suspended, in, as the story goes, he was suspended in midair, hugging the crucifix as he was praying, sort of lost in ecstasy. Um, where do these stories come from? Uh, that's a, actually a fascinating thing. Like I said, we have a lot of good documents. This, as I was about to say before, this book is written by a Dominican, Father Augustin Thompson. Uh, he did a lot of research on the Dominican co cooperative brothers, lay brothers, uh, conversi, all, all sorts of non-ordained Dominican brothers of, the, of, of history. And he wrote this. It was just published a few years ago. So this was one source for it. This book, uh, St. Martin de Porres, Apostle, Apostle of Charity by Cavallini, Giuliana Cavallini, I think this was the book that was used in the canonization process as the official life of St. Martin, um, originally in Italian, but it's been translated uh, this is another, another secondary source. But we actually have, and it, you can find this online, I can somehow post the links maybe eventually, we have 400 pages of testimony from the canonization proceedings, or the, the, the investigation into his life that's required before a canonization or beatification takes place, um, from 1660 and 1674. And there's other documents besides these, but these are, the, I think, the earliest collection of testimonies from about, uh, well, St. Martin died in 1639, so this would be about 21 years after his death. So they're interviewing people who knew St. Martin personally. They had interacted with St. Martin. So 400 pages of testimony of St. Martin. And so these stories are coming from eyewitness testimony, which is a fascinating thing to consider. And, and the testimony is collected from multiple sources given to 
multiple clergymen and notaries, and it's all very official and very uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. It's, it's all very official and uh, thorough is probably a good word to, to, to use for it. That for, those 400 pages were just the first step in the whole canonization process that was to come later. So that's the stories they're coming from. So St. Martin's great devotion to our Lord in the Eucharist, great devotion to, our, to Christ crucified, is, is one of those virtues that we can imitate. Another virtue that we can, or another aspect of his life that we can more for admire was there's one story where this brother uh, who was sick, actually, I forget the context now, but he was either in the, in the infirmary and sick, or maybe he was just a novice that Martin was talking to, but he was, he knew Chinese, and Martin was speaking to him in Chinese. No one knows how he could possibly have come across the, come, have been able to learn this language, um, being from uh, the background that he was from. And so uh, that was surprising, to say the least. It was just, you know, it was nothing terribly profound as far as I know, but he was just conversing, he, it was consoling to the brother that he was speaking to in, in Chinese. I forgot to say one thing. On, on, the, on the piety of St. Martin, so St. Martin was a Dominican, but before he entered the Dominicans, at age 15, by the way, before he entered the Dominicans, uh, became a Dominican, he was a very pious young child, and he grew up relatively poor. Um, he, well, let's see. For the first part of his life, at least. So, he was the son of a, of a wealthy Spaniard from Spain. Well, yeah, from Spain, I believe. Who, uh, and, and a Panamanian mother of African descent. So she, his, his mother was a freed slave, had been a slave before, but had been freed. His father did not at first acknowledge him as his son. So St. Martin's baptismal certificate lists his mother, Ana Velasquez, but then father is listed as unknown. So they, they grew up with just his mother supporting him and his sister, Juana, and they grew up in, in, they weren't utterly destitute, but they were relatively poor. Now, in this, in this situation, Martin still had concern for those who were even worse off than himself and very poor, so his mother would often send him to the market to pick up the food that they needed for, uh, for the home, which was often a bad idea in terms of accomplishing the purpose just because whenever Martin would come across someone begging on the street, he couldn't resist giving the person all the money that he had. And so uh, he would come back home empty-handed, much to the chagrin of his mother, and he would get a, a good scolding for it. Uh, but he took, he took the scolding and then did the exact same thing the next time around. So not all the time, he did eventually learn, but this is Martin as a young boy, uh, probably, well, it had to be before 10 years old, before he was 10. Later on, um, actually still in that era, he, he, well, actually, I don't know if it was in that era. Later on, when he was about 10 years old, his father comes back on the scene. Now, his father was actually, like I say, a wealthy Spaniard, and he 
was important politically. He was living in Ecuador for a, a long period of time, and Martin with his mother and sister were in Lima, Peru. His father comes back to Lima and acknowledges him, him as his son and takes, his, takes him and his sister back to Ecuador to live with him and start their education. Uh, so that happened again when Martin was about 10. Sure, maybe it was a couple years later, his father is appointed, I think it was governor of Panama. And so he, he leave, the father leaves Juana, Martin's sister, with her, with her uncle, his brother, and sends Martin back to live with his mother. But now his father is providing for the family and they're not in destitution anymore. So um, Martin's education and apprenticeship starts then, which I'll get back to. Uh, but the, well, actually, no, let's, let's, let's cover that now. So Martin's education and apprenticeship starts to a, a, a barber, which in those days was not just cutting hair, but was also minor surgery. So a barber surgeon and also a pharmacist, you could say he would uh, do stuff with, with yeah, use plants in various ways to, to assist in, in the healing process and whatnot. So he's apprenticed to this, this barber surgeon and is the, maybe the, the last five years or so before he enters the Dominican order. So that's his, his training. During that time, he's often asking the landlady for candles, for candle stubs that she has left over from uh, for whatever. And he, he asks for this a lot. And she starts to actually get suspicious of him. She's like, why in the world would he need to be staying up late at night, need these candles to be staying up late at night? And she's starting to think he has, he's you know, doing something not so, not so good, whatever it may be. So she decides to spy on him. And what does she see but uh, Martin in candlelight before the crucifix, uh, wrapped in prayer? And he's just these vigils of, of prayer and devotion to Christ were so impressive to her. You know, what would you do if you were spying on someone that you caught praying at night? Well, like her, of course, you get all of your friends to spy on him too. You call your friends together. Now you can see Martin wrapped in prayer. And so that's what she did. Um, they, they could see him through the keyhole in his room and whatnot. So it was a, a pastime of hers, I guess. So... Martin's devotion uh, was from a very young age. We can only assume that he, you know, probably largely got that from his mother and from maybe the masses that he heard uh, in the area. He would always stop, when he was, whenever, he, whenever he was on errands, he would always stop by the churches in the area to, uh, to pray a bit before completing the errand. Um, so that's a bit of his childhood. Other stories about Martin. So we know about his speaking Chinese, um, he also smelled good. This was actually remarkable because you wouldn't expect that given what he was doing. Uh, what was he doing? Well, he, he did eventually become infirmarian for the Dominicans. He was, um, you know, attending to the sick. And when, when he was done tending to the sick, he would uh, be tending to the poor and whatnot. <clears throat> When all of those things were, were done and he had spare time and he wasn't praying, he would actually take on other menial tasks that, um, 
yeah, like cleaning the latrines. So there's one testimony from that, those 400 pages of testimony where uh, this one friar comments on how you would expect Martin to smell bad given what he was doing, but every time I would hug him, he smelled really good. And uh, that was um, quasi-miraculous. Uh, so that was another aspect that was notable about his, uh, that just people noticed about him. Another thing, um, okay, well, we mentioned his care for the sick as infirmarian. Now, oh yeah, I'll skip over that for now. His care for the sick was often, so it was not only very solicitous, he was not only very solicitous for the sick, and so again, there's these virtues of the saints to, to imitate like that, and virtues to admire, uh, miraculous things even to admire about them. I already mentioned that when he was often in communion, and sometimes they would call for him, and he would just, all of a sudden, he's there. After they'd been searching all over and couldn't find him, he's there to help. That happened one time in the novitiate. So the novitiate in that convent, the places where the novices go, those who are in their first year of religious life, there was a novice who was sick with a fever, and the novitiate, it was very strictly um, segregated, uh, Quarantine, segregated is maybe a good word for it. What's a better word for it? Separated, um, separated, whatever. It, only the novice master and people who had business with the novices could, could have access to them. So Martin was not one of these people in this privileged position, although he would be brought in to care for the sick and whatnot. But there is this novice in the novitiate, and he just is he's feverish. He calls out for, for Martin. And all of a sudden, uh, Martin comes to him with exactly what he needed, a, a new tunic. He needed to change his tunic. And he's like, well, how, how did you get here? And Martin's like, don't ask questions. The doors were double locked. Like, you needed to get, uh, you needed, I don't, actually don't know exactly what that meant, but maybe two keys or two people with keys to open multiple doors to get to this place. And here, Martin just shows up with, with no one assisting him, right? Um, Another case of a similar sort of thing was how he would come with exactly what was needed. So there was one time uh, there was someone who was, who was sick of some sort and he with some sort of sickness, and he wanted a specific kind of orange. And, or in another case, there was a specific kind of jelly. And Martin just goes, he, he just had it with him when he came. He didn't have to go back to his cell. He just had exactly what the person wanted with him when he came. So just this seemingly uh, supernatural knowledge of what was necessary for his skill. Or maybe it was just that he, in some cases, I imagine it was just that because he was so solicitous for the brethren, he knew exactly what they needed or knew them so well, knew what to expect. That could be the case. But this happened so much and it was so notable that it came out multiple times in those, that 400 pages of testimony that people gave.
so that was another notable thing. Um, after his death, he continued his uh, ministry of healing to people. There was a woman who was in labor, and it was a very difficult pregnancy, <clears throat> and it was uh, so, she was in such a difficult circumstance that, now, okay, I might be confusing two stories, but there are, I think she might have been given extreme unction. She might have been given anointing of the sick. They were thinking she might die. Um, and that one person definitely said, the only way this baby can be delivered is if we open her up. Uh, so, and, you know, especially in that time, it's even more dangerous procedure than, um, yeah, than, than it is today. So someone happened to have this is shortly after Martin had died. Someone happened to have some, I believe it was cloth from his habit, and touched it to, they said, you know, we've we tried everything else. Let's try uh, St. Martin's intercession. So she touched it to the woman's, to the woman's belly, and uh, shortly thereafter, she gave birth with no difficulty, uh, I mean, no, uh, no complications, let's say, and in, in perfect health. Like she, uh, there was, she recovered quickly and there was no problem. So that was, again, shortly after Martin's birth. His, his intercession was already at work. Not only did Martin's concern extend to his, his brothers in, in religion, to the poor around him, and to any sick who might need his help, and from all levels of society too, not just the poor, but also, uh, but also the the rich. I think that woman might have been on the well-off side, and um, even high personages in the church. There was an archbishop who once, yeah, an archbishop who was once at death's door, and he was given given anointing of the sick. They were expecting his death, and they said, you know, why don't we call for Saint Martin? They said, okay, they went to the convent, they couldn't find St. Martin, why? It was communion day, so I think that was the occasion when they had the superior order him to come and he shows up and he heals the archbishop. So that was, so not only does he have concern for all levels of society, all these people, but he also had concern for animals. And there are multiple remarkable stories of his interaction with animals even to the extent that it seemed like animals knew what he was saying to them and would obey his commands, his verbal command. Well, yeah, his, his verbal commands. So, um, for example, well, let's see. Yeah, there's one, there's, for example, there's one story, and I wasn't able to find, this might not be in the, the 1660 and 1674 canonization proceedings or the, the process, uh, but it, it's elsewhere given, and I, so I don't know the ultimate source of this, but there was one time there was a big problem with a rat infestation, and the, the prior or someone had put out poison to, uh, to take care of the rats, and St. Martin wanted to, to go about things a different way. He, he didn't want to kill the rats. He, he had affection even for rats, and he decided to talk to the rats and reason with them. And so as the story goes, he explained the situation to, to one of them and said, uh, you know, 
that's poison, but if you come outside in the cloister garden, I'll give you food, just stay out of the house. So uh, as the story goes, that's exactly what happened. They, uh, the rats no longer infested the house, they were outside and Martin would feed them periodically and they were content with that. Another story of his care for animals, there was a dog which, I forget what the problem was with the dog, but I think, I think actually it smelled bad. It was, it, it, was, it was diseased, it smelled bad, so they decided to put it down. So they, they gave it the mortal blow, uh, I think stabbed it somehow, and Martin sees this happening and he grabs the dog takes it back to uh, wherever, the infirmary or his room or somewhere. And uh, I mean, they, they did a good job in dispatching. It was only a matter of, of moments probably. Oh, actually, there might be, I think there are actually two stories of dogs who are about to die. So one was, was stabbed, the other had a rock dropped on its head. Um, one was, they were intentionally putting it down. The other one, I, I don't know exactly what the reason for the rock was, but, uh, in both cases, Martin tends to the, to the animal and it surprisingly recovers to full strength and is very devoted to him afterwards. Um, yeah, the, the dog with the rock dropped on its head was actually kind of split open. Martin sewed it back up and after a couple days, it was walking around like normal. Um, another example of his surprising interactions with animals were when some bulls were brought into the convent. I guess that was, you know, Spanish culture, right? It comes to the Americas also in, in Spanish-controlled territories. And um, they, for some reason, some novices had a bull with them. And I've seen two versions of the story, or maybe they're two different stories, I don't know. In one version, the, the bull gets a bit unruly and it gets, the, the situation starts to get dangerous. Uh, and, but Martin approaches and just basically, uh, his, his, just his presence and he starts talking to the bull and whatnot, it calms down, starts nuzzling him and, and the situation is diffused. Um, I think there were multiple occasions where people were worried about a certain bull and Martin just walks in and there's no problem. Animals just responded to him in remarkable ways. A, a spiritual Dr. Doolittle, as Brother Hyacinth said. Um, okay, other stories before his death. Let's see here. Okay, there were also... Uh, There were also some people that he cared for in various ways that sort of behaved like animals. Uh, so there was a one particular brother. Now, you know, in certain Lima, Peru, in that era, the 17th century, end of 16th, beginning of 17th century, there was a lot of uh, deep, deep-seated racism. And so there was even one time when St. Martin is giving a haircut. He is a barber, after all. He's giving a haircut, tonsure, actually. So it's when the, um, the, the head would be shaved bald up here and a ring of hair would be left, the corona, uh, the crown, uh, as a sign of, of religious profession and whatnot. Well, there was one brother who, who 
didn't really like the look of the tonsure and didn't really want the haircut, but uh, all of a sudden he, I think he didn't even realize what was going on, but Martin already had him cut and it, and it, it was over and done with, and he was furious. Now, I'll read you the story here from Cavallini. Um, if I can find it. Okay. This novice went to see Martin, but didn't want to have his head shaved, so he remained there hesitating, unable to decide whether to go away or to have his head tonsured. His indecision was based on definite reason. The miserable crown of hair prescribed by the rule did not please him at all, but he lacked the courage to ask the barber to spare his hair, for he knew that Martin was deaf when it, came, when it was a question of relaxing the least point of the rule. While he was plunged in his thoughts and hesitation, he suddenly found his head in Martin's hands thoroughly wet, then covered with soap, then shaved with a crown of hair down to the minimum prescribed by the rule. He leapt up furiously and began to inveigh against Martin, calling him a mulatto dog, a hypocrite, a cheat. Paying no attention to this deluge of insults, Martin dried Francis's head thoroughly and asked him to look at himself in a mirror, adding that Francis would see that the crown was not so badly cut as he had imagined. Um, the, uh, a priest who was present sternly rebuked the novice for his misbehavior there. And um, Brother Francis, because of that rebuke and because he did see that it didn't look as bad as he thought, grew calmer. And so that was one situation. Now, this is just an example of Martin's extreme patience and his um, kindness to those who were very unkind to him. So <clears throat> this was noticed by this particular novice. Martin not only was patient with him, but it was at times Martin would treat people better when they were insulting to him. So this novice, kind of foolishly, noticed the pattern and started doing it intentionally. So he would call him names in order to get something that he wanted. And this, this relationship went on for some, for some time. And uh, eventually, Brother Francis... Uh, yeah, so Brother Francis, whenever he wanted Martin to do something for him, he took care to sprinkle his conversation liberally with the same epithets which had succeeded so well the first time. Martin, always calm and unchanging, would laugh and give the young friar whatever he had come to seek, letting Francis believe that in order to please him, he gave in to his caprices and, finally, and, um, and all that. Finally, the inevitable happened. Francis's eyes were suddenly opened and he saw things in quite a different light. He realized that Martin was wiser than he. He realized that of the two, he himself was the fool. He changed completely and began to observe every action and to note every word of Brother Martin and to try to imitate his holy life. And having preserved fresh and intact, even to his old age, the memory of what he had experienced in his youth Father Francis Velasco Carabantes was able to furnish one of the most vivid and valuable testimonies at the time of the informative process when they were gathering information on, for St. Martin's beatification. So, um, yeah, Martin was kind even to those who, who acted like animals at some times. 
Now, there, Martin is praised for his humility in this, uh, in, in, in multiple places. And there are some people uh, today who sort of take issue with that, and they, they see it as, they, people have raised the question, is all this talk of Martin's humi- so-called humility just sort of a code language for keeping him in his place and him accepting his place in society like they wanted everyone else to do? Were they, were they trying to co-opt Martin in a certain way to preserve society uh, in, in the various racial structures that existed in the day? So that question has been raised. I think that's, uh, it's a legitimate concern, but in Martin's particular case, I think that he is justly praised for real, you know, authentic humility. And it's notable that Martin's life was actually instrumental, most likely instrumental, in changing some societal structures that were racist. So there, there was, um, so unfortunately, to to the shame of Dominicans, there were some rules on the books about not accepting, uh, at least in, in Lima, Peru, not accepting certain brothers to certain positions in the Dominicans if they were of a certain race or mixed race. Those rules were stricken by a general chapter, so from, from the top, from the highest level of the order, when the general chapter met, those rules were stricken down I believe it was the same general chapter at which uh, Martin's obituary was read and he was publicly honored. So it's it's hard not to see the connection between the honoring of St. Martin at that chapter and this, um, this striking down of those unjust regulations. <clears throat> so that's, um, you know, we, we can legitimately praise Martin for his humility, I think, in, in not in, you know, this um, not in a uh, not with a double meaning. Yeah. Okay. That's most of the stories. So Martin uh, died at the age of 60. He spent uh, all his life at that same convent in Lima, Peru, the, um, the convent of Our Lady of the Rosary. And he, let's see here. Yeah, so right immediately after his, his death, uh, people you know, were swarming to, to come to his body and to touch rosaries to it, to, to touch various things to it. Everyone recognized him as a saint immediately. And that's actually an important thing in the canonization and beatification process. You look for immediate recognition, uh, popular recognition. Is there, is there devotion from the beginning uh, 
of his life, or is it something that, rise, that arises later on? This is something that happened immediately. So um, just, you know, a, a, just a, a few years later, I mean, 21 years later was when the, the archbishop of the area decides to open a formal process, but, but during that time, everyone was already recognizing him as a saint, you know, thinking of him as a saint, praying to him as a saint, um, in, in the appropriate private way, of course, uh, and asking his intercession for miracles and obtaining favors, as was reported at, at those proceedings in, in 1660. <clears throat> so, once again, I guess just, oh, you know, one thing I didn't mention, I actually couldn't find good primary source material on this, but Lima, at that time, was blessed with three great Dominican saints. So St. Martin de Porres was in Lima, uh, obviously. St. Juan Macias, another Dominican lay brother, uh, Conversi, was in Lima at the same time. And there is evidence that they knew each other. We don't have much information about their conversations or anything, but there, there is, I believe, documentation about their interactions. And St. Rose of Lima. St. Rose of Lima was baptized at the same font as St. Martin de Porres seven years after he, after he was. So um, there's not, I'm told, there's not good records of their interactions, but St. Martin de Porres was in Lima for the majority of his 60 years. It's hard to believe that they wouldn't have seen each other ever, you know, in, in that time. So, you know, we can presume so, even if there's not good documentary evidence, I think. Um, okay, so, you know, St. Martin is, uh, dies in 1639. 20 years later, the, the formal process starts of investigating into his life. He's actually not beatified, though. Beatification declared a blessed, the first step in the, well, one of the steps in the canonization process. He's not beatified until the 1800s. I don't know why there was such a delay, but um, 1837, I have in my mind. And then, even, and then later on, Saint, his friend, St. Juan Macias, was, was, oh wait, was that Paul VI? Okay, yeah. So St. Martin de Porres was canonized in 1962 by St. John XXIII, and then his friend, St. Juan Macias, later, uh, in, about a decade later, by Pope Paul VI. So takeaways from, uh, from his life, you know, for our own spiritual lives, Again, there's those twofold aspects of admiring the saints and imitating the saints. And so, you know, Martin's virtues of his devotion to Christ in the Eucharist, his devotion to, to Christ crucified, he, time and time again, there's not specific stories that I could find attached to it, but people just commented on his devotion to Our Lady and his devotion um, to St. Dominic and all the saints. Uh, that was notable to people, even though I, I couldn't find a specific story about it. Um, so that, those aspects of devotion in our own path, in our own personal call to holiness, St. Martin's humility in being willing to, to take these menial jobs, despite which he still smelled good and whatnot, uh, and his, also his really uh, notable is a too, too low a word for it, 
his surprising and beautiful care for anyone in need, uh, whether the sick, the poor, or whatever. So all these things, uh, we see the, the beauty of God shining through St. Martin, and it is an example to us as well. So as St. John the 23rd says, uh, may the example of Martin teach many how happy and wonderful it is to follow in the footsteps and obey the divine commands of Christ. With that, any questions? I can't promise to answer them, but I can listen to them. Um, well, I mean, he's one example. So infirmarian, the, the care of the sick was, was a significant thing that because of his training before he entered the order, uh, he was able to do. So that, that was, un, I'm under the impression that that was unusual. Um, but so the, the more common thing would be, yeah, the, the menial tasks is, is my impression. Uh, but he's an example, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to repeat the questions for, yeah. So the question was, uh, were brothers, did brothers do anything other than menial tasks at that time? And uh, the answer is yes, as seen in the life of St. Martin, but it might have been, I'd, it probably was the exception rather than the rule. Did I find testimonies of his bilocation? No, I didn't. I looked. But there's another, there are two other source documents. Uh, there's, so I only had access to the 1660-1674 inquiry into his life, which is freely available online. I can post the link for anyone who reads Spanish. It's, it's fascinating. Um, there's also a later inquiry, maybe a decade or two or three later, where that might show up. And there's also another, another document, but I, I couldn't, couldn't find those. I didn't, couldn't get access to them. Uh, but... But I did read in the official biography uh, the story, and she references one of those official sources. So, yeah, did I repeat the question? I'm sorry. The question was, what did, was there uh, in the sources that I read evidence of testimony of his bilocation? Bilocation meaning his being in apparently two places at once. Um, and there are, I think, at least a couple of stories about him uh, in that regard, but, it, but not in the sources that I was able to read. Question about St. Martin's relationship with his father and how it could be relevant to people today. So, yeah, so St. Martin was, from his earliest, his earliest childhood up until about 10 years old, the father just wasn't around. His father was in Ecuador. He was in Lima, Peru. And so, you know, people that, you know, experience that, that difficulty can, can have a, uh, a companion of sorts in St. Martin and um, know that uh, this great saint also experienced that sadness. Um, his relationship with his father later, yeah, his, his father... Um, what still, even so for two years when his father took him to Ecuador to live with him, 
That, I think, was the most that, his, that he saw his father, because, again, his father later was made governor of, of Panama, and I don't know how much interaction they had after that. However, there, there was something else where <clears throat> St. Martin deciding to enter the Dominican order as a donatus, the lowest form of religious life there, not as a conversus, another form of lay brother. His father objected to that. You know, his father is this wealthy Spaniard and uh, wanted something higher for his son. Uh, But Martin insisted himself. It wasn't something, all the evidence points to, it wasn't something imposed on him because there was another brother from a similar, you know, the question is, was this a racist um, choice on the part of those in charge? Well, no, there was another uh, young man who actually had, had been a slave and was of at least partial African descent, and he was allowed to become a, a conversus, a lay brother. So it really does seem to be what the records say, that Martin intentionally, out of humility, wanting the lowest place, chose to be a Donatus. Um, but yeah, his father objected to that, um, but I think we eventually was reconciled to the idea and accepted his son's intentional humility. Yeah. Oh. That is his tomb, I'm sorry I didn't say. In Lima, yes. Uh, thanks to Father Dominic for the picture. And he, if you want to know about, more about that, Father Dominic has visited Lima, Peru and seen the, the convent where St. Martin was. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, so I actually didn't read the, the screen. This is a more recent tomb uh, because it, meant it, it talks about his canonization by St. John Twenty-Third. So uh, not the original, but that, that's where he is. So the question, did St. Martin serve the poor and beg, and beg for, for, for money and whatnot, and donations and whatnot, as the you know, our Dominican order is originally found as a mendicant order, a begging order? So absolutely, St. Martin, um, it's noted in the, by various witnesses how much money passed through his hands. He actually, because of his, you know, um, because of his mixed ancestry he, from a, a wealthy Spanish father and um, his uh, black Panamanian mother was able to relate to people of, mo- of all levels of society, really. And so, um, and, and that, was, that was, I guess, acceptable in, in, in society at that time. So, Many of the wealthy of the city would, uh, would give would donations for the poor. He would collect for the poor and for the convent. Um, and you know, people remarked at how, yeah, the, the vast amount of money that, that passed through his hands for the poor and, and for the various needs. How many people lived in the convent he was in? Yeah, how many friars? Uh, one number that sticks in my mind, though I can't remember the source, was about 300. So the, the convents in Lima, Peru at that time, there, and there were multiple Dominican convents, not to mention other religious orders, 
were just bursting at the seams with, with Dominicans. So in one convent, in this very large convent, three, 300 friars. All right, thanks very much. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Brother James. Great job. Um, so he, he works very hard in um, teaching at St. Hubert's, and he was very generous to, to, and willing to do this um, after his school year ended, and um, so we really appreciate it. Uh, now next week, we have our brothers, summer brothers, Brother Christopher Daniel, Brother John Henry Peters, who will be talking about St. Margaret of Costello, Right, so the, the newest, one of the newest canonized saints in the church, and she's been blessed. We've been recognized her as blessed for for a few centuries, but she just was canonized this year, just a couple months ago, in COVID. And so she's a patron saint of persons with disabilities, and um, a really awesome saint, amazing saint, um, saint of our times as well. Uh, even though she lived in the 12, 1300s. So we hope you come back for that. Uh, spread the word as well. Um, the Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks again.